0: Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Our scripture passage this morning is Psalm 17. As we carry on through the psalms this summer, Psalm 17 is up next. And as we open God's word this morning, just a, just a note on what, what we're doing. It's easy to read the psalms, to read God's word, and we're familiar with it. We're here on Sunday. We're going to read a passage of scripture together and, 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 and learn from it. But, but what is God doing? As we open God's word, God is speaking to us. He is teaching us. He's instructing us. The title of the sermon is, what are we after after all? A short answer to that is we're after truth. We're after God's truth. And in the Psalms, we are given that. We are given the truth of God for us as we navigate the lives that God has called us to. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? We'll read from Psalm 17 together. This is a Psalm of David. We don't know the exact circumstances that are surrounding it, but we know that David, as he often is in the Psalms, is in trouble. He's in trouble, and he prays with confidence to a God that he knows will hear him. And so as we read this this morning, let's think through it in that lens of taking our problems, our struggles, to the God who is there, who is not silent, the one who answers our prayers. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge. From their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground." He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we study it, as we sit under it this morning together, would you instruct us? Would we see your truth? Would our hearts be shaped by this? Would we know that this truth is what is what is real, what should shape us, inform us, and instruct us in how we should live and how we should act. Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning? We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Don't know if you remember this a tagline from an advertisement, uh, for a lot of years until recently Sprite, the soft drink, its line was obey your thirst, obey your thirst. Now it's, it's sort of clever, ad, ad agencies are good at coming up with these slogans, right? They, they take a need and then they attach their product to that. We've all been thirsty and this line obey means that you should do something about your thirst. When you, when you are thirsty, you should take some action and they insert their product into that, that place. Now what does that have to do with this, this text? Well, we see that there is a desire to be satisfied, a desire to be satisfied, content to have what we need. And actually, in the case of this psalm, David's desire is that he would be protected. He has enemies that are coming pressing in on him, and he says, "I, I need protection." And that protection is linked to this, this satisfaction that he longs for. Now, I don't know what you're longing for this morning. I don't know what you're thirsty for, so to speak. Maybe it's for belonging. Maybe it's loneliness to have that remedied. Maybe it's just to be free from pain. Maybe it is for protection, that there would be somebody who would, who would fight for you, that would stand up for you in the midst of the situation that you're in. What does it actually mean to be satisfied? What does it mean to, to have our thirst, so to speak, and obey it, to, to say, I've got this thirst. How do, I, how do I remedy it? How do I put in what I need, so I'm actually satisfied. Well, let's look. That's the question that, that is offered to us. And, and there are three things that sort of come out of this text that begin pointing us to a remedy for what we actually long for, what our souls really need. And it begins with this, this innocent plea in the first five verses of this psalm. David cries out, and he says, I am, I'm innocent. And now if you're familiar with the psalms, you'll know that David will do this from time to time. He'll come to God and say, God, there's nothing wrong with me. Now, that's, that's fairly bold language to come to God and say, I am, I'm innocent. So what, what, what is David doing here? Is David saying, I'm a perfect, a good person? We know that's not true from looking at other Psalms. We know David will come and confess his sin. But it seems at least one way that we can understand what, what David is doing here is in this present instance, as these enemies press in on me, I, I really haven't done anything wrong. These are evil, wicked people that are pressing in on me. He says in verse one, hear a just cause, that is David's cause, which is just, attend to my cry. My lips are free from deceit. It's as much to say, I I am not lying. Similar to what Paul will say in Romans, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. David has a clean conscience on on this issue. We don't know exactly what is transpiring, but there again are evil forces, evil people sort of pressing in and threatening David. Not just physically, but it would seem also spiritually later in the psalm. And and he says, God, would you do something? Verse 2, would you give me vindication? Would you make my case sort of heard and and bring justice about? And he says this, from your presence. It's going to be a key theme throughout this, this psalm. All that God is going to do, all that David needs, comes from God's presence. And even here he says, your presence let my vindication come. Let my eyes behold, your eyes behold the right. And so this is how David begins his, his case. And then he says some fairly dramatic things in terms of how he talks with God. Verse three, says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. Now, again, this is a, a strong way to talk to God. Is David saying he is perfectly sinless in all regards? I don't think so. But he's saying, in this instance, Lord, you you have looked at me. You have seen my motives. There's nothing that I've I've done that is problematic here. What is going on? Why am I experiencing this onslaught of oppression in the midst of a a moment where, where you have tried me, that you have looked at me? He's inviting God's scrutiny on himself. And then he says, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. He goes on, verse four, with regard to the works of men, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Now, that's a strong thing for David to say, right? If we remember David's history, we know that he is a man who has been involved in great bloodshed, so much so that he, he actually isn't the one who builds the temple. It's possible that there's a moment in David's life that he's recalling here. Maybe you know this story of, of Nabal, where David and his men are sort of on the run and they go to this rich man and say, would you feed us? And the man says, no, I'm not going to feed you. He has abundance, but he won't provide for him. And David becomes sort of hot under the collar, and he's going to go and sort of prove. He he straps on a sword with his men, and they're going to go sort of demand food by force, it would seem. And what happens? Well, in that moment, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, comes and intervenes and speaks. Actually, the text in uh, 1 Samuel 25 sort of connects what she's saying as if God is sort of directing David and says, don't do this. Don't do this. There are moments where David has, has heard God and, and has moved away from violence. He has followed God, and so he records that in this psalm. And verse 5, he says, My steps have held fast to your paths. The sense of a path here is a well-worn sort of wagon train type path that he has, he has stayed on. He hasn't moved away from it. He has not slipped off of it. You can look through the, the sort of the movement here. God has visited his heart. He has purposed, David has purposed with his mouth and his feet have not slipped. It's his heart, his mouth, his actions. are. He's bringing them before God and saying, God, I, I don't see anything wrong here. And so what, what does this have to do with us? How, how do we take this? this psalm? Well, th- there are two ways to read a psalm like this. One is to say there is a certain instance in my life where I am experiencing oppression. I am experiencing sort of people trying to move me away into what is, what is wicked and evil. And, and Lord, would you protect me from that? I'm, I'm innocent. Don't, don't let me go there. And so we're invited to, to pray these words. Maybe we think through moments uh, in our present culture. I don't know if you, you've experienced this, but a feeling of sort of your sort of biblical values being, being pressed in on. Slowly, firmly, pressed in on, moved in a certain way. Psalms like this are a time to say, Lord, I I, I believe your word. Would you instruct me? Would you help me stay in the paths that you have have given me? It's also appropriate to read this psalm and and see it as exposing our own sin, to read these verses and say, "I, I am not presently this way. Lord, if you visited me at night, I would be undone. All my sin would be, be revealed. This is also a, a time to read these verses and to come to God and say, God, I'm not presently righteous. Later, he will say, we need righteousness to behold the face of God. Lord, I desire that, but I, I don't have righteousness presently. Would you show me your gospel truth? Would you show me the righteousness that I can find in Jesus? There's an invitation like David does here to actually ask that God would examine our hearts. How often do we do that? How often do we have a, a prayer life with God that looks like actually saying, God, would you, would you show me my sin? Maybe there's something I'm, I'm missing. David and other psalms will say, Lord, forgive my, my hidden faults. To use this sort of language and say, Lord, would you test me? Would you show me where there is sin that I need to repent of? And as we do that, that we would go to the, the paths of life that are offered here, holding fast to your paths, that that would be the way that we, we live and move and as we do that, as we ask God to come and examine us as we confess of our sin, that we would actually then be able to declare with David that, that I am righteous. That we can actually say the words with David, then say, I, I, I am righteous in your sight. Not, not because of our perfection, but because of Jesus. And to actually read these words in a way that should give us confidence. That this is how we approach God. And here are just cause. I, I, Lord, would you attend to my cry? Not because of my righteousness, not because of my perfection, but because of of Jesus. That's where this psalm begins with this plea of of innocence. But it doesn't just leave us in sort of this nice innocent state that begins to move us towards something that offers us refuge, this immovable refuge that we see in verses 6 through 9. David calls upon him that God would answer, inclining his ear. And then verse seven, this is language that we'll see again and again in the Psalms. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, to those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Wondrously show, don't just sort of show up, but, but declare in power who you, God, wonder, who you are, God. Wondrously show, demonstrate it, your steadfast love. Again, that's a, it's a Hebrew word underneath that steadfast love, hesed, that is all over the Old Testament. It is this Old Testament gospel language that reveals God's very character. That's who he's coming to. The hesed, the st- steadfast love that, it, that moves towards his people in mercy and in compassion, that is what God offers to us as we pray to him. And then uses this word, oh Savior, a word often used for those who are innocent those who are being pressed in on by those who are hostile, those who often sort of take advantage of positions of power and come and and punish those who are weak. This is the Savior, the Deliverer that David prays to. Those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David knew what it was like to seek refuge. If we read his sort of stories in First and Second Samuel, we see moments where he is hiding and taking refuge in rocks and caves. He takes refuge. But here, even as he knows what it's like to take physical refuge, spiritually, he knows that his real refuge comes here from God, the one who he seeks refuge and finds it where? At your right hand. Again, pointing to God's presence as a place of, of refuge, of support, not something peripheral, but something that is important to David. Verse 9, if we jump down to verse 9 for a moment, we see that there is this picture of the enemies that he faces, deadly enemies who surround me. Not just sort of tepid sort of enemies that are just sort of mildly oppressing him, but deadly enemies, those who are seeking his life. And I know it's, it, it's maybe hard to, to wrap our minds around that sometimes when we're in the Psalms. There are all these deadly enemies swirling around, and, and we go and live our lives, and we currently don't have any deadly enemies that are pressing in on us. One way to read that is to to remind ourselves that there is more often going on in the world than we know. Um, not talking about sort of conspiracy theories behind the scenes, but remember that Ephesians 6 language that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers and authorities, spiritual forces of of evil. There there is more going on here, and these psalms are often in a physical sort of instance, but they point us to spiritual realities. David even later in the psalm will say, deliver my soul not simply talking about his, his body being delivered, sort of getting out by the skin of his teeth, but, but that his very soul, his, his spiritual vitality, his wellness would be taken care of, be delivered from these, these enemies. And so David comes with great confidence to God with these, these words of refuge, of love, of wondrously showing all of these realities of who God is. And then in verse 80, he gives us these two images that I think are really helpful and important. Now, God could have just said, I am there for you, and just sort of left it at that. And that would have been true, right, and biblical. But instead, through the Psalms, we get this poetic imagery that that draws us into who God is. The first one is, keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Now, that's probably not a phrase we use too often. And in fact, the way we use it now, I think, is a little bit different than what the text is is getting at. If you've spent time sort of in the deep south, this kind of phrase has a little bit of sentimentality. Maybe you can picture like a southern mother saying this to their child, you're the apple of my eye, and it's this sort of uh, emotional sort of sweetness. Now, there are parts of that that, that can be appropriate, but, but really what this is saying here, the apple of your eye, what is the apple of your eye? It's the, it's the people. It's the center of your eye. Now, the original audience, when they would have used this phrase, what, what, the center of his eye was very, was very important. You need to be able to see, right? You need to be able to have vision. And what happens if your eye is, is threatened? What do you instinctively do? You protect it. You turn away. You close your eye. Some sort of thing is coming towards you. And, and that's really what is behind this sort of language here, in the Psalms, keep me as the apple of your eye, is saying, Lord, would you would you protect me as someone protects their own vision? I don't know if you've ever lost your vision for a period of time. Uh, I had this happen one time. I won't go into all the details, but something struck my eye, and I, I couldn't see after a, a while. I remember sitting in an emergency room and, and losing my vision in one of my eyes, and it was it was terrifying. I couldn't see. It was only for a brief period of time. It came back. And everything was all right, but, but that's sort of the, the language here. Our vision is so very important, so very precious. And that's what God is saying here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Protect me as vision its, itself. And to that then he adds this, this rich picture of the shadow of your wings. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What is that? Well, I mean, if you, if you know birds gathering, sort of spreading their wings, drawing in their Young ones, it should remind us, even as we read it here, of, of Jesus, shouldn't it? What does Jesus do in Luke 13 when he looks over Jerusalem? He says, "O Jerusalem, how I have longed to, to gather you in as a hen gathers her chicks." This is a picture not just of God here in His relationship with David, but of our Savior Jesus who draws us in with warmth, with welcome. These are the the pictures that sort of enliven our imaginations as we understand who God is. We don't just get a a sentence here, but we get a picture. It's not describing God as sort of anatomically with these things. They're metaphors that point to the theological truth of who God is. One who cares for us, protects us, gathers us, and loves us. This is why David is so confident in how he comes and asks, that he knows who God is, even as it's revealed in these verses. And so the question for us is, is, do we understand God this way? When we pray to God, do we, do we understand that he is the one who keeps us as the apple of our eye, who gathers us in the shadow of his wing? In those moments when we're not satisfied, when we want protection, when we want something to sort of placate us and satisfy us, is this the image that we go to? Or do we go to all the other things that we think will satisfy us somehow? All the things that we sort of fill in our, our desire for satisfaction when this, this is what we're offered. The God who is there. One who brings us vindication by his presence. It actually invites us to, to pray for protection. I think that's something we do, we do naturally, right? We pray for protection and sometimes we use some of those, those biblical words like put a hedge of protection around me. We like that one. We don't really know what that, that means. But we, we use these biblical phrases and, and, and the Psalms are, are rich with them to actually pray words like this, Lord, would you, would you keep me as the apple of your eye? Would you surround me? Would you wondrously show your steadfast love to me? We're invited to pray these things to God together through the Psalms. And as we do that, we begin to see the immense satisfaction that is offered to us. But before we get to the real satisfaction, there's this imagined satisfaction that the psalm shows us. Verses 10 through 13 and 14 give us a picture of the the evil, the wickedness that is pressing in on David. Describes them in verse 10 as closing their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. Now that phrase, closing their hearts to pity, has this picture of sort of their hearts being literally in the Hebrew enclosed in fat, sort of closed off. There's no way their heart can actually respond to anyone in love and compassion anymore. They speak arrogantly. They say it is all about them. They are perfectly in control, and they speak with great arrogance. Now, we might read that and say, oh, yeah, those are those, are those wicked people over there. But remember, whenever we see the wicked in these psalms, it, sometimes it, it reveals things about ourselves, too, doesn't it? Where have we been closed off from pity? Where have we been sort of moved away so that we think, oh, man, I, I don't really need to care about that. I don't need to care about those people. I'm, I'm okay. We read these psalms always having them sort of diagnose our own souls, our own sins, and coming in repentance. Because this state of closing their hearts to pity is, is lumped in with all these other acts of, of wickedness. Verse 11, they surround our steps. They set our eyes to cast us to the ground. And these imagery of lions, like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking in ambush. Now, those are sort of distant metaphors, pictures for us. Those were real things for David. David knew what it was like to experience things like that, and he compares his present situation in the world with these physical things that he has encountered, places where he has been pressed in on. And then he says this in verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. This is strong language again, to, to take our problem and say, God, would you confront that? Would you subdue that? Would you deal with that? Deliver my soul, not just my physical body, but my soul from the wicked by your sword. And then he describes these, these men who are pressing in on him in more detail in verse 14. For men by your hand, O Lord, for men of the world whose portion is in your life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. This is the reality that he describes for us. Now, the the Hebrew in verse 14, depending on what translation you have here, might have sounded a little bit different from what I read here. There is some attempt to sort of understand exactly what is is being said here. The Hebrew is a little, little sparse. And so... What I read here, I think, is the most simple explanation of what is going on here. Now, it might catch you a surprise at first, right? We're talking about wicked people. We're talking about people that David is saying subdue them, confront them, all those things. And then what does he wish on them? That their wombs would be filled with treasure, that they would be satisfied with children, and that they would leave their abundance to their infants. That, that sounds, on the surface, kind of good, right? Those are, those are things that people in David's day and age would have wanted, Right, that they would have children. That was sort of the the way that you preserved your financial self, your sort of your name, all of those things. This was a a good thing for these, these people. How do we understand that? Well, it really comes in the first part of verse 14. For men of the world whose portion is in this life. David is saying, in a sense, give them everything they want. Let them have their portion in this life. Let them know the good life now, and they'll see that that really is, is emptiness. Let them pass on things to their kids. Let them think that that is all going to be well and good, but, but there's something that they're, they're missing here. One commentator described what David is wishing on them as a prosperous lowland. It's prosperous, but it's not, it's not the real thing. It's not what really will finally fully satisfy them. Think about it this way. You're going to just a, a wonderful restaurant, Great menu, great chef, all these things. You're excited about this meal, the delicious food that you're gonna eat. It's gonna be different. Great flavors are gonna be brought together. And you walk in, and what do you get? Get the kid's menu. And what's on every kid's menu at every restaurant, no matter how nice, or it's, it's mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, that's it. And that's what you get to eat. There's this banquet sort of just there in the kitchen, but all you're getting is sort of the mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. It's in a sense what David is, is asking that they would know their portion in this life. Now, what does this mean for, for you and I as we think about this? Well, wh- wh- where is our actual desire, our satisfaction? Do we think that if we just left off verse 15 where we'll see in a moment that we would be well and, and good and provided for? If our 401ks were just full and inflation-proof, then we'd be happy. For mortgages were paid off. If we had better jobs... If we could just take the whole summer off and do nothing. Those are ways that we might sort of fill in what David is saying here. If we could just have those things, then we would be satisfied. And David cautions against this because the the people that that are satisfied with the portion in this life are also the ones who are doing damage and are in danger of David's soul. David needs deliverance from this way of thinking, of this way of living, that the portion would just be in this life. David knows that there is something better past all of these things. Maybe some of you know the author Flannery O'Connor, remember her short stories, maybe you had to read them sometime in your educational um, life. I came across a letter she wrote this week, and in this letter, if you know some of her stories, she struggled with uh, lupus for many years, Um, wrote most of her sort of famous works while she was suffering with, with lupus. Her father had died earlier of it and she died fairly young. She writes this letter to a friend, though. She says this, Picture me with ground teeth, stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. See, David knows that there is is dangers as he looks for true joy. There is dangers, and he pursues what is is really good. Look at verse 15 with me. It says this, As for me, the contrast that, that sets all of this in perspective, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now that when we read that quickly, we might just say, okay, yes, this is good biblical language. God will do something and we'll be satisfied. But let's slow down for a moment. I shall behold your face in righteousness. We shall behold God's God's face. If we we look through the Old Testament, we know that this is, and really all of Scripture, this is a a big theme of how can, can God and man sort of come back together? How can we see God? We know back in in Exodus, there are these these moments where where God sort of speaks face to face from the mountain, both with all of God's people, but especially with with Moses. There's so much glory and wonder that that as God passes before him, David only sees his, or Moses, rather, only sees his, his back. And here, David says that, I shall behold your face. Now, in righteousness... Right? Not, not in his own righteousness, but a righteousness that, that will be given to him. Hebrews 12 and 14 says in the New Testament, without righteousness, without holiness, no one will see God. We need Christ's holiness so that the satisfaction of seeing God's face is really offered to us. Matthew 5, 8 says this, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Now, now how does this happen? When do, we, when do we see God? What does it even mean to see God? First John 3, 2 gives us some instruction, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, that is Christ, he shall, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, the, the theological term for this is the beatific vision. What does that mean? It just means the, the happy sight, the sight of, of happiness. When we see Jesus, there is, is happiness That's what David is is pointing us to. Now, when he says, when I awake, back in the text, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, it's possible that David is just talking about waking up in the morning. And there would be good biblical precedents for that Lamentations: His mercies are new every morning. David may just be talking about waking up in the morning and sensing God's presence and his word speaking to him and, and, and that reality. But that word awake often points to something more points to the resurrection. We see that in Daniel 12 too, where the same word is talking about those who, who wake up in the resurrection. The Psalms around this also speak of, of a reality of finding present, in the presence of God, the fullness of joy, verse 11 of Psalm 16, where it's talking about uh, end of life and, and going to hell or to, to heaven. And verse 11 says this of Psalm 16, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. This is what should should satisfy us. As we look in our life, as we long for things, this is what we are headed towards: seeing God's face. Now, it's not necessarily talking about seeing with sort of resurrected eyeballs to see Jesus. It's pointing to that in part, but it's talking about the experience of our souls when we are in God's presence. Remember, God doesn't have a body, he's a spirit. Some of this will be manifested in and through Jesus. But but that reality of our souls, when we see God, when we are with him, we'll be satisfied. And that is is rich and that is good. And that is our our hope that we, we look to. Now, what about right now? Do we get some of this right now? Yes, we do. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 says, now we see dimly, but then face to face. So we see something of it now, dimly now. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 8 adds some more context to that and notes that as we are sort of beholding the glory of God, we are transformed more and more into the image of his Son, that we taste some of this now through his word, through his sacrament, through fellowship together. We taste some of this now and begin to find the satisfaction, to begin to build an appetite for the satisfaction that will fulfill us for all of eternity. That's what we're longing for. This is, this is who we are. David, in this moment, at the very end of this psalm, sort of opens everything up and says, this is what we're after, after all. Seeing God, his presence, being with him, all of this is, is offered to us. The poet uh, George Herbert, uh, English poet from 1500s 1600s, said this, What wonders shall we feel when we shall see by full-eyed love? When thou shalt look us out of pain. When thou shalt look us out of pain. What he was reflecting on was what we read in Revelation 21 this morning and 22, where there's this reality that in the new heavens and the new earth, when God dwells with us, our pain is gone. And Revelation 22 and four, verse 4 points to the reality that part of that all comes in when we see God's face. That's what David is anticipating, what he's, he's longing for. Maybe one way of, of illustrating this, maybe you followed the, the news in, in Ukraine this, this week, and I, I almost hesitate to use this as an illustration because it's, it's, it's a real experience I'm not trying to make, make light of it. But there's something in this story that points to what David is, is experiencing here. The, the steel work plant, remember this in Mariupol, and the, as a Vastel steel company, right? There's this group of people that were underneath this steel plant for, for weeks, for months, and, and they've gotten out more and more over the course of this week, and there was one sort of news story of some children coming out, and they'd been underground for two months, and they saw the sun for the first time, and, and just the joy on their faces, and the, the things that they were saying, and sort of the, the freedom and wonder that they experienced, it's just, it's just a small part of, of what David is pointing to here, that this is where we're going. To see God's faith, beholding it in righteousness. not our righteousness, but a righteousness that is given to us. And so when we're we're confronted with the view that would say your portion is in your life, we're invited to say, is is that it? Is that all that the world can really offer? And to look with our, our vision that is growing more and more in tune with what is true to this idea of beholding the face of our Savior in righteousness given to us by him. This should grow our love for the gospel, longing and our longing for heaven. When Christ is seen and he looks on us in our righteousness that is given to us, we will be satisfied. Not just sort of satisfied, not just we finally have enough, but but our very purpose of who we are, of what God made us for will be fulfilled. And David looks to that. In the midst of our struggle now, experiences some of it and longs for the rest of it. And that's what we do this morning. We experience some of what Christ has offered us now, and we rejoice to look to that day when we will experience fully what God offers us when faith becomes sight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you instruct us in it? Would we walk, as this passage even says, in your paths of life, that we would not depart from them, that we, Lord, would not look to all the portions of this world that say, that's good, go after that. But instead, we would know where our satisfaction is lies. And Lord, even if we see it dimly now that by the power of your spirit, you would show us more and more that this is where our satisfaction lies in you and what you offer us and in your very presence in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask this in your name. Amen.